Father, we come before you as we do every Sunday. We ask for your blessing upon your word. We ask that it would take root in our hearts, that it would produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times that which is sown. And we ask that you would do this in us because it is for your glory and not for ours. We ask that you would increase and that we might decrease to make this happen even more. The evangelism going out throughout the world, the information about your word increasing so that people might be saved and might avoid the judgment which is to come. And we thank you, Lord, for your word because it guides us in this life. And it has benefit not only for this life, but for the next. So teach us and guide us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we made it all the way to verse 18, but I'm just going to read from verse 11 in chapter 3. This talks about the love of the children of God, just to give it context. This is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the devil, one, or evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So (coughs) we are not to hate and we are to love. And if we hate somebody, then it shows that we really don't belong to Christ at all because God is love and God lives in us and that love exudes out of us and we have compassion on those who are around us. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And I went into a little bit of a diatribe on this. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brothers in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And I told you I am often perplexed about those who are poor and those who are on assistance in this country. And we really don't have the poor in this country like we do worldwide. And all of that is true. But at the same time, if God lays it upon our hearts to help somebody, even in our cultural context... We're supposed to reach out and we're supposed to help them. And we're supposed to do that without judging. That's how we're supposed to give. Matter of fact, when we give money to somebody out there, we're supposed to give without being expecting to be paid back. If uh, somebody has a need like a medical bill or you pay their rent or something like that, we are supposed to just walk away from that point. That's what scripture says. Now, if you feel the need to pay somebody back, that is completely up to you if you receive assistance. But the person who gives is just supposed to write it off. And what God does in heaven is he has a ledger up there and he says, okay, let's see, so-and-so gave $100 to this individual on this date and it was for this purpose. And he writes all that down. Now, I don't think he has a pen like we have, a big pen. He probably just does it with his finger or he doesn't even have to do that. He just thinks it or he doesn't even write it down. He remembers it, right? He has this account of what you have done and that is pleasing to God if you just give. Now, you don't want to be taken advantage of. That's another problem I have an issue with. If somebody in this country is homeless, most of the homeless, not all, but most of the homeless choose to be homeless. And they want to be there. They don't want to have responsibility. They want to take drugs or they want to have alcohol or they just want to be irresponsible as far as their life is concerned. And if we help those individuals, first of all, if God tells you to help them, you're supposed to help them. And you might say, well, how do I know if God wants me to help them? 
That's where your walk is supposed to be tight with the Lord. It's not like you hear his voice. You know, you walk up to somebody and they, they say, hey man, can I have a couple bucks? I'm down on my luck here. And you go, what? <laughs> yeah, like the guy's going to look at you like, who are you talking to, man? <laughs> I'm listening for God. What? What? Am I supposed to help you? God will place it in your heart, the desire, as long as you're walking tight with him. If you're not walking tight with him, you, you just don't know. Am I supposed to help this person? Am I not supposed to help this person? If he prompts you to do it, you just help the person. Because it's often a test for you. It's not necessarily a test for them. It's a test for you. Do you have mercy and grace? I mean, look at us. God did this thing for us where he died for us and he gave us salvation. And how wretched are we? How many times have we turned away from God and said, nah, I don't have time for you? You know, we kind of reject him. We reject his counsel, but he still has mercy on us. But we want to be wise. We don't want somebody taking advantage of us. We don't want somebody ripping us off. Have you ever gotten the phone calls saying, if you just send us $400, we'll send you a check for 10000 My father-in-law gets those phone calls regularly. And he ends up talking to the people. And he says, I tell you what, why don't you just cash the check, take out the $400, and send me the rest? You know, that's what he tells them. And of course, he never gets the check. But uh, there are people out there who would attempt to deceive you. They want to take advantage of you. And you have to be careful of that. So it's this delicate balance. Do you judge those who are homeless and in need and say you are unworthy? Or do we just help every single person who asks of us, regardless of who they are? If we did that, we'd all end up becoming poor. We wouldn't have anything to share with those who are truly in need. And so it is a balancing act. And the only way to discern uh, how we're supposed to act in those situations is to be close with God. Dear children, verse 18, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. Do not say... I love you. I love you. I hope you're going to be okay. I hope everything works out for you. If you have the ability to get in there and help, you're supposed to get in there and help as the Lord leads. Now, love is demonstrated through acts of benevolence. In other words, we're going to be known as believers, as followers of Christ, by our actions. We are to work to have a good reputation. God says, you know, the what people think about you is more important than the possessions you have. A good name is more important than silver and gold or than riches. And so if you're going to build up anything in this life, you want to build up a good reputation. Now, as a believer, you want to build up a reputation as one who is generous, one who is kind, one who is giving, one who is self-sacrificing. If If we as a human race get wrapped up in ourselves, things just go completely wrong. If you're carrying a cloud over your head saying, woe is me, and the focus gets on you, then everything is going to go awry. Remember the story I told you last week about the guy who fell on the grenade and it blew his jaw halfway to his shoulder and and his buddy got some shrapnel in his brain and it affected him a little bit and he got 99% of the grenade blast but that 1% hit his buddy. He regretted that he didn't stop that 1%. He didn't lament his own situation. He lamented the situation of his brother in arms. 
That's how we're supposed to be. We are supposed to divest ourselves of ourselves. Forget yourself. If you do that, that's where the happiness comes in. Are there people that you know that aren't happy? Usually it's because, woe is me. I am so unhappy. I don't have this. I don't have that. I'm lacking in this area. I wish I had more in that area. And all of a sudden, you're walking around going, oh, I feel so terrible. Well, the reason you feel terrible is because you're focusing on yourself. I mean, look at yourself. Look at myself. We're all rotten sinners. I mean, you go a couple of days and what happens to you? If you don't take a shower, you stink, right? And that's just the half of it. If you don't feed yourself, your body gets mad at you and it starts creating this anger within you. And if somebody talks to you and you're hungry and you haven't fed yourself, what do you do? You snap at them. What do you want? You know, something like that. We are just wicked to the core. And if you forget about yourself, and it's a, it's a struggle. Uh, scripture says <coughs> that we are to pick up our cross daily. And when we think about that, I, I don't know if you've seen the guy occasionally around El Cajon, but he has this cross that he carries around El Cajon. It's made out of four by fours. And it has a couple of wheels on the back. And so like skateboard wheels, the old, the old turnkey skate, you know, the metal wheels. On, he has them on the back, so he carries the cross around town. I don't think that that's what God had in mind. But all of us would pick up a cross and actually walk the streets with the cross. I get what he's trying to accomplish. But we are to crucify ourselves daily. Now, people don't like to hear that. And you, you might still not be understanding what that means. To crucify yourself daily is just like Christ. He went to the cross willingly. Nobody had to force him down. He laid down on the cross. His arm was stretched out. He allowed them to pierce his hands. He allowed them to pierce his feet. And he says, I'm going to do this for the sake of humanity. If you pick up your cross, you're taking your wants, cares, and desires, and you're crucifying them. Now, what does your body want to do when you experience a little pain? St- stop it, right? You want, to, you want to pull back? You want to recoil? You say, no, I'm not going to crucify myself. I'm not doing that. I'm an American. You know, we, we have this idea. We have these rights, and we need to stick with these rights, and hoorah! And hey, it's wonderful to be patriotic and all that, but when it comes to your personal life... We are to be sacrificial in that. And our country is becoming increasingly narcissistic. And so I'm telling you this morning as believers, we're to gain this reputation of one who is sacrificial, who does not seek their own way, even in their lifestyle. We should all have a lifestyle that is frugal enough to where we can help others in some way, in some fashion. One that is frugal enough that we budget our time to where we can give our time to others as well that we lose ourselves in christ in what he would have us do that's what picking up the cross means but we have a hard time doing that we don't want to carry around that cross we don't want to crucify ourselves and then when we crucify ourselves we change our minds we pull up our arms from the cross no i'm not doing this today i'm getting up and i'm gonna do what i want And then Paul says, I buffet my body to bring it into subjection. In other words, I don't want to make light of this, but it almost is this schizophrenic type of existence. 
the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. When the body starts coming up and you say, it's alive! You say, no, you're dead. And you crucify the body again. I'm using all these metaphors. But do you get what I'm saying? You take the flesh, you crucify it, all of its desires. Now, who in here is 100% successful? Nobody. We let that flesh just run rampant at times. It's like a two-year-old who just got out of the bath that you don't have a handle on. What does he do? Run scream. He's a screaming Mimi through the house. He goes right through the house. That's what we do with our flesh. We just let it run ragged. And then you say, come here, mister. And you pull them in and you wrap them up. They're going, hey. You wrap them up, you know, you dry them off. And that's what our flesh does. Our flesh is totally self-focused and God says, don't do that. So gain that character reputation. Have people know you as one who sacrifices for others in whichever way God leads you to do that. Now, (coughs) excuse me. If we all do this in unison, there was this song written in the 60s, 1968, by a Catholic priest. His name is Peter R. Schultes. It was inspired by John 13.35. And I think you'll know this one. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. And, and that's the idea that we are all unified in this. Now, say, for instance, all of us are in a canoe. And we all have an oar. Now, I just happen to be at the back with my oar, and I'm steering, right? I'm just going back and forth. And then somebody is at the front going, stroke! Like, like Eric. Eric would be up there going, stroke! He goes, no, not you. I'm having a stroke! You know, I have all these kids, stroke! You know, that type of thing. But you're all, we're just paddling along. And then you have one guy that says, nah, I'm going the other way, like this. And you're trying to go, all of us are going forward like this. And the other guy's going, I don't want to do that. I want to do my own thing. I want to go in reverse. You guys ever been whitewater rafting? Anybody? Whitewater rafting? Only a few of you? Oh, man, you haven't lived until you almost die doing that. It's just... (laughs) It's just the greatest thing. You know, they have these calls where the right-hand side of the boat, it has to go backwards, and the other side of the boat has to go forwards. And if you mess up, oh, I'm going to divert here for a little bit. We went to this whitewater rafting over at uh, Calvary Chapel, La Mesa. pastor took all the elders to whitewater rafting up in the middle fork of the American River. And there's this, this pass called the Z Pass. And what you have to do, you have to go up, and then you have to go back, and then you have to go back down. And if you don't do it right, you're going over. It just flips your boat. <coughs> and so the guide that was in the boat, he told us to do a high side. You have to get the high side of the boat. And it was just mayhem. And the rest of the guides were all worried that this guide wasn't going to do so good. And he didn't. And we went down there and he goes, high side to the right. Well, we were supposed to do a high side to the left. Since we did a high side to the right, it immediately flipped the boat and it was a washing machine underneath. And Patty said, I'm going to die. This is the time I'm going to die. And you, they tell you to reach up. Maybe you'll come up underneath the boat and you'll be able to crawl along the boat and get out. There was no boat. 
I did that, and all I felt were tennis shoes above me. So I was pretty deep down there. And, and then there were the next falls right afterwards. So if you didn't get in the boat right after that, you're dead. You know, it's just like, get in the boat. We have these helmets on. Everybody's scrambling. The, the guide couldn't even get back in the boat himself. It was just a mess. Nobody was acting in unison. And that's what happens in the Christian life. You know, if we're all stroke, stroke, you know, we're all going forward and one guy or two guys or three guys are going, nope, I'm not stroking, I'm going the other way. And then the boat just, it doesn't go anywhere or it just spins in circles. I mean, what are we doing? We have to be of one mind, of one accord. We have to be unified in what we're doing. You know, you guys show up here to church on Sunday morning, it's great. And every once in a while you have somebody goes, Nope, I'm rolling backwards. I'm going somewhere. Why? Well, because I have to brush my teeth, you know, or something like that. And that's why they don't want to make it. It's important that we are unified and we are sticking together and you get to meet the people. That's, that's why I have this side cross over to that side and talk to the people on that side. But I noticed the people on the outskirts, I was noticing this today. They stand there and they look at the other side going, I hope they never say, these people aren't friendly here. You know, it's like cross over, talk to the, get to know them. You're going to spend eternity with them. You know, you're going to be right there. Oh, you, yeah, I never said hi to you in church. Sorry about that. I know I was there for 20 years, but I never said anything. (laughs) Maybe I should get back to the text. Okay. So we are supposed to be known by the love that we demonstrate through the acts of benevolence. We will be known by what we do and you cannot hide good works. Now, even false prophets are known by what they do. You will know them by their fruit. And there's a little bit more in here about false prophets that we'll be getting into. But Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through verse 20 says that you will recognize these false teachers by their fruits. <coughs> now, going on, verse 19. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. And so there's this idea that we have doubt that comes along. When we're doing works, we have great assurance of our faith. It doesn't bring us salvation. But, you know, if I tell you that if you have faith, it is supposed to produce in you fruit, If you do not produce fruit, on one hand, you're not a fruit tree. If you are a tree that has no nourishment for those who are around you, you need to question your salvation. You might say, no, what what do you mean about that? For instance, a lemon tree, citrus, stone fruits. You have peaches, you have nectarines, you have pluots, you have all these different fruits that are out there. And in their season, they produce fruit. And people will go up to a fruit tree and they will pick of that fruit and they will eat it and receive nourishment. In the same manner, as Christians, there is to be times where we produce fruit. There will be times where we do not produce fruit. And that's okay. We're just growing still in the process. But people are supposed to be able to come to us and take some of that fruit and get a little bit of wisdom and walk away with it. You know, when you go to a fruit tree, you usually don't gorge yourself. You take one piece of fruit and that's sufficient. Even though there may be hundreds of pieces of fruit on that tree, 
You usually grab just one and you walk away. Now that fruit for us is represented in the works that we do. If we never have works that are produced by our faith, then are you really saved? Because God says, if you abide in the vine, you will produce fruit. Now, some people say, well, I walked forward. I I accepted Christ, but scripture's clear. Something is going to be visible to those who are around you if you're producing the fruit. If you always say, no, I'm not interested in anything. Well, is there really fruit? And this is where we're supposed to do the self-examination. We hold the scripture up like a mirror. We go, is that me? Am I really producing fruit? And you, some might argue and say, well, you know, I have love. Well, that's wonderful. If you're married and you tell your wife as a man you love her, but you never do anything for her, do you love her? No. The woman, I don't know, guys, if you know this, but you got to take time just showing them that you love them. You know what happens if you don't show them that you love them? They get not nice, you know? They, they get a little upset. They start saying, I don't know that you love me. What do you mean I tell you I love you all the time? I know, but you know, I, you just, you know, there's nothing ever done. What do you mean I tell you I love you? Well, you know, we never go anywhere or do anything and you tell me you love me but you know you don't act like it and then the woman just kind of falls in this malaise and the guy's going what's wrong i don't understand how come what's the deal here it's like guys are stupid i'm one of them and you have to learn what it is to love you have to actually put it in action now i've been saying this for a couple of weeks and so we're supposed to do that if you do that <coughs> what happens is the person has great assurance that they're loved. But you have to do it more and more and more. It's not anything that you can give up on. If you do that, have you ever heard the saying, I'm sure you have, a happy wife, a happy life. If your wife is happy and she knows that she's loved, then you're going to have a happy love life as a guy. The man who fails to love his wife, he's going to find the proverb coming true, it is better to live in the corner of a rooftop than in a house with a brawling woman. That's what's going to be the case. And so, men, it is our responsibility. And that's the same thing as being a Christian. If we do these works, we understand that we are saved because the works flow because of the example that Christ gave us. He worked for us in salvation. We recognize that. And so we work for others for their salvation. But we will have this doubt that just gnaws at us if we never produce any fruit. And we are to examine ourselves. Second Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Now going on in verse 21 of John chapter 3. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And so in other words, if you don't do what pleases him, there is this condemnation that kind of hangs over us. Like we're not doing what he's asked us to do. If we do what he asks us to do, then we're going to have confidence before him. We can go before God at the bema seat of Christ and he will say, well, what did you do for me? Well, 
don't answer that. I know what you did for me. And he's going to open up the book, so to speak. Oh, you did all of these different things. That's wonderful. And you believed in me. You had faith. You had the trust. It's all there. It's the complete package. You're saved. Here's your reward. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But if you get up there and he goes, so what'd you do for me? And you go, well, I went to church. And we don't want to have the and. We don't want to have the pregnant pause. We want to have the well done, good and faithful servant. And that, again, requires us to crucify ourselves, to take our own desires and put them to the side. We should be waking up every day saying, God, what do you have for me today? What do you want me to do? Just set me on that path. I am open. Whatever. I'm not putting my agenda first. You're supposed to lay out what you're supposed to do, but God can change it at any time. So this obedience, it brings blessing. <coughs> Excuse me, is what we just learned in verse 22. We will receive anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. First John chapter 5, verse 14, same author as this little epistle. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Now, how would you like that? You have a request. Now, if you're walking with God, you're going to ask for what he wants you to ask for. And when you ask for it, you're going to get it. Now, if you don't get it, he's saying, no, that's not for you. And you'll find that out through laboring and prayer. But if you ask for it and it's his will, sometimes you get it instantly. It doesn't wait. It, It doesn't get delayed. God says, you have it. And so you can ask the Father for it. If it's according to his will and you keep his commands, you have it. I mean, that's plain and simple. But a lot of times we just don't ask. For instance, you want something for, you want God to do something big for you? If you could ask anything of God, what would you ask him for? Now, if you say, I want good health. Uh Uh-huh. I one good health what if the lord doesn't want you to have good health remember the apostle paul he had the thorn in the flesh he said god take it away from me and god said no i'm not going to do that and so he got to live with this infirmity and paul said you know i asked him three times and he kept on telling me my grace is sufficient for you bummer you know, so he had to live with this weakness that was there. So if you're going, God, I want good health. If it's not his will, you say, okay, I'll just pick up that cross again and keep on going. Even though I'm kind of sickly, you know, whatever God wants for me. You see, that's, that's the divestment of yourself from yourself. But if you ask him anything according to his will, he grants it. What if you see somebody and you go, well, God, you want me to witness to him? What do you think the answer to that is? Of course he does. Find the inroad to where you can do that. Don't just say, hi, my name is Bill. I'm from Calvary Chapel Lakeside. I'm here to give you the gospel of Jesus Christ and how to avoid the judgment to come. Would you like to hear it? I mean, if you do something like that, he's going to go, what? You know, he's going to kind of turn back. You've got to build relationship in order to talk to somebody. Sometimes you can just do it on the street and walk up. But it's always God's will that people know. So we venture out. God, do you want me to talk to that person? Of course you do. Give me the words. Is it his will that you have the words? 
Yes, it is. But he goes, now you need to study to show yourself approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So if you're doing all that preparation, it's his will. He's going to provide for you the opportunity. That's how it works. Now going on in verse 23. And this is the command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So there are three conditions that we are told here in verses 23 and 24 for salvation. One is faith. The other is obedience that comes from faith. And the other is the internal witness. The first one is faith. You must believe that God exists in order to be saved. You can't say God is some ethereal idea. He's not really a person. You can go to this higher plane and you'll become one with everybody up there and there'll be no distinction. We become part of the collective. No, it doesn't work like that. You have to believe that God is who he says he is as revealed from his scripture. Secondly, once you believe that and you accept him, there's going to be obedience that comes into your life. Now, it's not going to be 100%. We're going to stumble and fall. The righteous man falls seven times and get back up. Seven times after that, that's in the book of Proverbs. And so there is this striving to be obedient. If you find those two things that exist, faith and obedience, you're going to have a third witness. And that is going to be the Spirit of God who lives in you. Now, how do you know that you're going to have these feelings of love for those who are around you? Now, not always. Your flesh is going to try to overcome that. Your flesh is going to try to say, don't love them more than you love yourself. You know, you have to love yourself before you can love anybody else. Have you ever heard that worldly wisdom? I can't love, my, I can't love anyone else because I don't love myself. I, I've got to fix myself first. Such an error. That is the wisdom of the world. Forget about yourself. Put your, how do you love yourself? Well, the scripture talks about that. Do you get up in the morning? Do you brush your teeth? Most of you do, I'm sure, right? You brush your teeth. Do most of you get up and take a shower? Or do you take a shower before you? Yeah. Do you feed yourself? Yeah. Well, you love yourself, right? Well, I got to buy myself some new clothes. I need to buy myself a new big screen TV. You know, you love yourself. You get yourself stuff. I bought myself a car. I'm treating myself well. I need a steak. You know, some, you, you just, you put all this stuff together and you love yourself. And the person that says, I don't love myself very much, that's just a bunch of hogwash. That's the wisdom of the world. We are to forget about ourselves. Have I said this enough? We're to forget about ourselves and focus on everybody else. If we do that, then we know that we're acting in obedience, that we are in love, and that is the faith expressing itself. Okay, now, in the book of John here, this first John... Not that any of you would know this, but do you know how many times the word love is used in 1 John? I could start counting them off. 35 times. 35. Now, in a short letter, if somebody used the word, same word, 35 times, if you went to an English lit course, they would redline that too many of the same word, use a different word, and they would highlight it and say, wrong, 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 wrong. Well, John did that. Love, 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 love. It's all the way through there. 
And he's telling us who God is, how we're supposed to act, the evidence of your salvation. It's going to be this love working itself out in action. So this doubt, as I said before, it gets alleviated through this faith or trust. And the works or obedience come along and we have the internal witness of the Spirit. When you get saved, God places his Holy Spirit inside of us. And we have this internal witness. We also have this internal conscience. We have our own, and we have the one of the Spirit. Now, I want you to do this. Try to be aware of this. The next time you want to go sin, stop for a minute and just listen. If you go, okay, I'm going to do this. Not that you say that to yourself, but you're going towards the mark of sin, right? Next time you do that, just go, stop. If God want me to do this, what do you think you're going to hear? No! He doesn't want you to do that. That's the internal witness. That's what we're supposed to pay attention to. But what do we do? We start going towards the sin. We don't stop. We just go, blah, 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 blah. And we just go right for the sin. We go, yeah, that's, that's what I want. And then we grieve the Spirit, and the Spirit doesn't speak during that time. Then we repent, we get restored, and we say, I'm sorry, God, I wasn't acting right. And he goes, I know. Well, let's pick it right back up. And so he is faithful to help us in the walk after that. So that's how it works, and we get great assurance of that. Now, it does speak about deacons. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, that because they have served well and they have an excellent standing among the body because they have gained a reputation for being selfless, they have great assurance in their faith. If you want great assurance of your faith, do the same thing. Gain that character, gain that reputation, and exercise the love that God has given to you by loving others. Now, going on with this, in chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, obviously, John is writing this because there are false prophets, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) at the time of the inception of the church, when the church began, people were going out saying things that were not true at all. And so he's warning them about these people because they didn't have the Bible to go back to the New Testament. And so the prophets would show up and they would tell them what the will of God was because there was this office of the prophet. And the prophet would dictate the will of God to the people that stand up in the midst of the uh, congregation. And the congregation would listen to the prophet and they'd say, oh, it sounds good. And the testimony would be established by the whole church. There is no private interpretation that is delivered to the church. Everybody would be able to say amen to that. Like, for instance, if I told you, if we didn't have the scriptures, and I came in in the first century church, and I said, we are to love our enemies and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Most of you would go, amen. That is good. That bears witness. That comes from the Spirit of God. And somebody might say, can I get a witness? Oh, you guys aren't familiar with that, right? If I say, can I get a witness, what are you supposed to say? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was, that was kind of like a lakeside church. 
you know, it's that clapping thing and it's the saying amen, you know, it's not really full gospel. Can I get a witness? Amen. Hey, there we go. That's good. Clapping after church, right? And so that's, that's the witness that the people had back then, but there would be false prophets who would come in and they would say things like the resurrection has already happened. And then there would be confusion in the body and a lot of the body would be going, wait a second. That doesn't sound right. Well, today we have the scripture. We can go right to the scripture and it tells us, no, there's going to be a resurrection to come. And so that's how it was working back then. And John is warning these people about these false prophets. They're to test the spirits. Now, what does that mean? That seems kind of ethereal. That seems kind of like a cloud. How do I test the spirits? What is what is that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's all these gifts that are listed there. And one is the discerning of spirits. And you say, okay, this sounds kind of weird. What are you talking about discerning of spirits? <clears throat> Let me give you an example. Say somebody comes into the church. They walk in here and they're shaking hands and they're all smiles. And then you talk to them afterwards after church. And they, they do this. They go, man, it's kind of dark in here, isn't it? got all earth tones in here what's the deal how come you don't have like puce and you know mauve and stuff like that around here isn't it kind of cold in here oh maybe it's too hot in here what the humidity and who's that pastor anyhow he just kind of talks about anything he wants to doesn't he He kind of gets in this that music man just like ear piercing what's going and what about that sunday school over there and man how come the dirt's over at the side of the church why isn't that cemented in and all they have is donuts here what what's going on coffee do they have decaf too oh do they have nescafe i like instant they don't have instant well do you do you have cream to mix with that coffee or do you just have that dry stuff that you put in there and and, why these people are sure weird here now what if somebody came through like that you're testing the spirits what do you know about that guy such a complainer I would help them leave is what I would do. I would say, dude, you got to change that or you got to get out of here. You know, you're violating Philippians chapter 2 verse 14. We're not allowed to complain about anything. But if somebody comes through the doors and says, well, praise the Lord. Everybody's so nice and friendly here. It's just wonderful. This guy's like a family. I can't wait to go to the home Bible study because... I'm sure it's just great there. And I hear you guys have good food too. And I just love the worship. Wow, those ladies are really good. That guy has a little bit to be desired. But the ladies are really good up there. You know, and, and you're just going, wow, I like that person. And you, you know the spirit of that person is like filled with joy and happiness. And, and they ask what they can do. But the person who is the complainer, that's kind of testing the spirits. You know what's going on. Well, in this particular case... If you're not of the spirit of Christ, you're of the spirit of Antichrist. If you're preaching there is no resurrection, but the prophets in, as a whole say there is a resurrection, you're discerning something is not right here, and the spirit of God inside of you gives some people the particular gift to immediately recognize that person is trouble. Watch out. For that person. Now, over the years, we've had a lot of people come to church that we just go, whew, okay, we're going to just help this person right out of the church doors. Not that I'm not compassionate with the person, but it's just a problem waiting to happen. They would take advantage of you guys. We've had people go through the body and fleece the body for hundreds of dollars. You know, and once I found out about it, it's just, 
I'm that sheepdog. You know, you are not getting away with this. And I bring them in and I talk to them. I say, you will not ask anybody else for money in this church. You know, and there are wolves in sheep's clothing that come in. And those people with the gift of discernment are able to pick those people out very clearly, very, very distinctly. Sometimes they don't know exactly what it is. They just know they need to watch out. So we have this spirit. Now, the spirit that helps us identify who comes into the church, especially those with the gift of discernment. But we're supposed to test the authenticity of false prophets or false teachers as well. I have two minutes. I'm going to give you the first one. I have six items here. How we can recognize them, especially going through this particular chapter, chapter 2. It says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So that's the first one. The acknowledgement of the incarnation. If somebody comes into church and says, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, God in human form, the one who became a human being who was in heaven and descended to earth. That is the standard orthodox belief of the Christian faith. If somebody comes in and says, no, Jesus wasn't really God. He was just a good teacher. He was a nice prophet, but he wasn't God. That person more than anybody else, I would say, you are not welcome here at this church. You are a false teacher, and you will lead the flock of God astray. And that's the job of the teachers and the leaders, the elders and the deacons inside of any church, is to point out who the false teachers are and what they have to say. So they will deny, any teacher that is a spirit of Antichrist will deny the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the cults do that. They deny the incarnation, the actual becoming a physical human being of the second person of the Trinity. And that's how you know they are false teachers right away. It goes on to say, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. If you went out to the world right now in a public forum and you said, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the one who sacrificed himself for our sins that we might have salvation and ascended to the right hand of the Father. If you said that at Jack Murphy's, excuse me, it's not Jack Murphy's Stadium, Qualcomm Stadium that's soon no longer to be, the Qualcomm Stadium there, if you said that to 50,000, 60,000 people there, would they all resoundingly say amen or would they say, I don't think so? They would say, no, they would all say, I don't think so. There would be a few that would say amen, but they would be drowned out by most of the audience that would be in that particular arena. Most of the world does not believe that. If they believe that, they would be acting in love. Most of the world does not act in love. Most of the world acts with selfish motives. Verse 4, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And so I'll pick it back up there in verse 4. But that's the first thing about false teachers. What you should probably do this week, if you watch any pastors on television, any televangelists, start using discernment. Going, is what they're saying are, are they of the spirit of Antichrist, even though they claim to be Christians? Or are they of the spirit of Christ? And there's other markers that will help us determine that as we continue to go forward. But ask God, if you don't have that discernment, 
ask for that discernment. Not that you're going to get it and emanate from out of your fingertips and go, what kind of person are you? It doesn't work. It doesn't work like that, okay? God will just let you know inside. He will give you the sense of what's going on. He can give you that discernment. And with any of the gifts, if you feel you are lacking in the gifts area, ask for them. Just say, God, I want that gift. And if it's his will, do you get it? There's a, yeah, there we go. Can I get a witness? That's what it is. Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for the little epistle of 1 John. We are so blessed to have your word in front of us that we can see clearly what your will is, what your teaching is. And for your apostle John who penned all of these words and showed us what love actually is and how Jesus Christ exemplified that. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to be that example as well. The example that Jesus left, may we mimic that as well as the example that the Apostle John left. May we be like him and may we be able to tell others about this goodness that you have for us. And help us, Lord, to resist the ways of the world. In Jesus' name, And the church said.